Welcome to another episode of Curbside Consults, where we take a deep dive into the practice-changing research published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This episode of Curbside Consults brings a change in the guard. We say goodbye to the 2019-2020 editorial fellows, Ken Wu, Kristen Ottage, and Ahmed Zaheen, and welcome three new fellows for 2020-2021. My name is James O'Connell, and I'm a doctor in training from the Republic of Ireland, and I'm joined by Dr. Siri Kadira and Dr. Jihan Shaduri. Hi, I'm Suri Kadiri. I recently completed my internal medicine training at Indiana University. Welcome, Siri. And today, unfortunately, we are but two when we should be three. Yes, Dr. Jahan Chowdhury will be joining us in another episode of Curbside Consults. She is an infectious diseases specialist, and she recently completed her training at Tufts Medical Center. Great. So, Siri, it seems like the three of us will not be working in the same office for some time as we adjust to the reality of working from home as editorial fellows. That's true. It's been nice working at home, but it certainly has its disadvantages. Uh, yes, I'm afraid we'd have to wait a while before we can all enjoy some Boston style chowder or go to the Red Sox game. Oh, here we go. Okay, okay. I'll give it a rest. Yeah, especially since the Red Sox aren't very good. Well, I'm looking to you guys to enlighten me on the great pearls of Bostonian culture, like baseball and seafood. I just moved here and I'm looking to be enlightened myself. But there's so much good food and I can't help but think about all of the calories we could have consumed together. And that brings me right to the topic of our discussion, obesity. The last two or three decades have seen a large increase in the number of people living with obesity around the world, particularly in high-income countries. In the United States, 42% of adults are obese and 9% have severe obesity. We know that obesity is associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes and cancer, and ultimately an overall reduced life expectancy of between 5 and 20 years. However, being obese can also have a significant social and financial cost and can be extremely disruptive to an individual's quality of life. So what can be done to manage obesity? Physical exercise and calorie reduction are key, but for some patients, they are not enough to achieve the necessary weight loss to reduce their risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes and cancer, or to allow them to live a full life. Since inception in the 1950s, surgical techniques for bariatric surgery have improved steadily, and today they are at the forefront of treatment of morbid obesity. American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery estimate that there were 252,000 bariatric surgeries performed in the United States alone in 2018. Bariatric surgery is known to reduce the risk of diabetes and improve hypertension in morbidly obese patients. Less is known about its effect on long-term treatment outcomes, such as life expectancy. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Clifford J. Rosen to discuss a recent publication from the Swedish Obesity Subject Study in the New England Journal of Medicine examining life expectancy after bariatric surgery. Dr. Clifford J. Rosen is a professor of medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine and associate editor at NEGM. Welcome, Dr. Rosen, and thank you for joining us on Curbside Consults. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be with you. Thanks, Dr. Rosen. Uh, to start off with, in what way is performing bariatric surgery beneficial to patients when compared to calorie reduction, physical exercise, and medical therapy alone? So the major benefit of bariatric surgery is the rapidity of weight loss and the improvement in glucose tolerance and insulin resistance. So fairly rapidly in four to eight weeks, one can see a significant reduction in fat mass. And with that is the accompanying change in glucose tolerance and overall insulin resistance. So the weight loss can be rather dramatic. And I think it's the trajectory of weight loss that is so beneficial particularly in high-risk individuals. Interesting. And in which patients should bariatric surgery be offered as an intervention to increase weight loss? And does the timing of the intervention make a difference on the outcomes for these patients? So I'll take the second point first. It's interesting, in the Swedish osteoporosis study, the best mortality improvement 
was in those individuals with the highest waist-to-hip ratio, suggesting that the more severe patients probably have the greater benefit. It's certainly true for patients who have diabetes, which is about 15% of the Swedish obesity study. Those with diabetes, those that have had it for long periods of time, are less likely to have total reversal of their diabetes, even though they have the same degree of weight loss. So in general, we recommend early intervention in obesity that is substantial, greater than a BMI of 35 and ranging up to 40 and beyond. And those individuals generally tend to do the best. Obviously, there's comorbidities in older individuals. And I'd say two-thirds of the individuals who undergo a bariatric surgery are below the age of 60. So that improves their likelihood of not getting complications. Okay. And are the mechanisms by which different bariatric surgeries reduce hypertension and diabetes known? So that's one of my favorite topics. And we recently had a paper in New England Journal in August from the Klein Group at Washington University in which they compared weight loss from a RU&Y gastric bypass versus weight loss that was dietarily induced. They both had 18% weight loss and both showed improvement in insulin sensitivity and glucose tolerance and in glucose clamp studies, suggesting that it's the weight loss itself that's probably the primary mechanism for improvement in insulin sensitivity, and that might relate directly or indirectly to hypertension. But certainly in terms of glucose tolerance, it's the degree of weight loss and the reduction in overall adipose tissue which drives the improvement in insulin sensitivity. On the other hand, there are a lot of other hypotheses that have been generated about the mechanism, including changes in branched amino acids, the degree in which absorption is impaired in the proximal small intestine or the stomach, and central hormonal mediators that are released in response to changes in the stomach size. I should tell you that there's been a recent trend away from the ruin why, and in fact, the most common bypass surgery now is a vertical sleeve gastrectomy. And there, where 70% of the stomach is reduced, the morbidities associated with that are much lower than they are with ruin why gastric bypass or any other type of bypass procedure. But they still have this significant weight loss and the improvement in insulin sensitivity. Unfortunately, in the Swedish obesity study, most of those subjects were either in RU&Y or a gastric banding procedure. But currently, vertical sleeve gastrectomy is the, the treatment usually through endoscopic surgery. Okay. And considering uh, the points you just made, is it possible to predict in advance who will benefit most from bariatric surgery? Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, we have a lot of short-term data that individuals that are at highest risk tend to do better in terms of reducing some of their surrogate markers. In the Swedish obesity study, as I mentioned, the best predictor of extension of mortality or reduction in overall mortality is a higher waist-to-hip ratio. And interesting, in the Swedish obesity study, what they did is they compared obese individuals who underwent gastric bypass with obese individuals who just went through conventional food restriction and exercise. And what they found was 
the individuals who had a higher BMI, lower educational status, and those that had greater uh, frequency of type 2 diabetes and smoking actually did better. So as you sum up some risk factors, it actually looks like the higher risk individuals had a reduction in overall mortality. So they used those two groups and then they compared it to a Swedish control group that was normal body weight. And what they found was that bariatric surgery reduced the overall mortality rate. That is, they were able to have a life extension that was greater than the individuals in the control group who just got dietary restriction, but it still was not up to the level of survival for those healthy Swedish individuals. So it definitely works. It definitely improves some of the risk factors. It definitely causes weight loss, but these individuals still are at greater risk of shorter lifespan. This paper from the Swedish obese subject study to me seemed like quite an important publication. Would you like to tell us exactly why you thought the study is important, Dr. Rosen? Yeah, so I think the most important thing is that long-term follow-up, 20 years of, 22 years of follow-up. So we don't have that kind of data in any other cohort right now. So when you think about it, this was started in the late 1990s, and therefore we have a real good sense of being able to predict mortality differences. And this is the first time we've seen this. We have a lot of cohorts that have three and five-year follow-up data that show reduction in cardiovascular risk, reduction in overall cardiovascular disease events, and decrease in blood pressure, suggesting that short-term, these procedures definitely have some impact on surrogate measures. But when we're talking about overall lifespan, that's something that's relatively novel in this study and certainly supports the widespread use for the treatment of obesity, particularly those individuals who have type 2 diabetes and are significantly overweight. Uh, vertical sleep gastrectomy provides an important option, which in some cases, and I hate to use the term cure, but in up to 50% of cases, glucose tolerance returns to normal with significant weight loss. So this has a huge impact on a long-term disease course with something like type 2 diabetes. And patients in the Swedish obese subject study were recruited between 1987 and 2001. And I imagine bariatric surgery was a lot different than it is today. While there are some benefits in the life expectancy when obese patients who underwent bariatric surgery were compared to patients who did not undergo bariatric surgery, they still had a shorter life expectancy than the general population. Why do you think this was, and do you think that with today's bariatric surgery techniques, that this may be different? That's a great question, Jim, and I think the answer is we don't know. As I mentioned, the control healthy group still live longer than the bariatric treated group. There's been considerable improvement in the technique of vertical sleeve gastrectomy, so that may have some impact, and we just would have to wait more longitudinal studies of vertical sleeve gastrectomy to really help us understand whether that could push our survival rates to similar to controls. It's just unclear at this stage. There's no question that the earlier bariatric surgery procedures had significantly greater morbidity than endoscopic vertical sleeve gastrectomy. But there are still residual questions that arise about vertical sleeve gastrectomy and any type of bariatric surgery, for example, some recent data suggests there's still a higher rate of fractures 
in individuals undergoing gastric bypass. And bone loss is an accompaniment of this procedure in virtually all cases. So we still have to try to understand some of the morbidity associated with changing how food gets absorbed in the stomach. But in sum, the data are quite promising, and we now just have to wait for longitudinal data in subjects with vertical sleeve gastrectomy. And that's probably five to 10 years away, since virtually every paper that we've seen at the journal and elsewhere still talks about the historical data from Rue and Y gastric bypass procedures or banding procedures, but not vertical sleeve gastrectomy. So we still have a ways to go. In what way does the study change uh, practice or health policy? It seems to me that it would support the assertion that we should be performing more bariatric surgery. That's a great question and one of the reasons we are highlighting this paper. I think the reluctancy on the part of primary care docs to refer somebody to for gastric bypass or vertical sleeve gastrectomy, the more modern approach, was based on older data in terms of morbidity. And we now know that the procedure is quite safe. It's, as you said, over a quarter million people underwent it in the United States this past year. So I think policy will change. I think reimbursement, I think being underwritten by Medicaid and other uh, government payers is very important. And the data is really pretty compelling. I mean, we don't have many drugs that can do what bypass does in respect to changing surrogate outcomes and overall mortality. So I think this is practice changing. I think the clinician in primary care is more likely now than they were before to refer for bariatric surgery. And the volumes attest to the fact that people are beginning to appreciate the relative safety and more importantly, the tremendous efficacy that comes from weight loss. I should point out that as I mentioned in the beginning in the Klein paper, that weight loss of any kind is essential in obesity to reduce overall morbidity and mortality. And any way you do it is great. But what we've learned from the weight loss drugs and the dietary interventions and even the dietary and exercise interventions is they're often not sustained beyond two years. And here you have a procedure that basically brings you well beyond that with sustaining of persistent weight loss. And so therefore, it's not to say this is a better intervention than lifestyle intervention, but it's one that at this stage prolongs the remission of diabetes and the sustainment of weight loss. And that's really important. Okay, so that wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I would like to thank Dr. Clifford Rosen for joining us today in our discussion about the role bariatric surgery has in improving the expectancy and life expectancy in patients with obesity. Our production team here at NEGM Residentiary 60 includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Cathy Stern. Special thanks also to our NEGM Education Editor, Dr. O.P. Hanvey. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please email us at residentry60 at NEJM.org. Remember to subscribe to the NEJM social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook via the NEJM.org pages. On behalf of the New England Journal of Medicine, this is James O'Connell signing off.